1: It's available now on all your favorite podcast apps. In
2: 1968, a strange sight turned up on the Carnival and Fair Circuit. A man named Frank Hansen toured with a special trailer containing a block of ice within which appeared to be a six-foot-tall hairy humanoid. This exhibit might have disappeared into the dustbin of history had it not been for the work of cryptozoologists Ivan Sanderson and Bernard Heuvelmans, who both wrote scholarly articles Reporting the creature to be a real animal or perhaps humanoid. With this endorsement, the question of whether this exhibit, now known as the Minnesota Iceman, was a real creature or just a carnival hoax, became a part of cryptozoological debates for decades. It's actually quite unlike anything we've ever seen before. A giant hairy creature,
3: part ape, part man.
0: Monster
2: Today on Monster Talk, we'll speak with former sideshow performer and Bigfoot researcher, Matt Crowley. You may recall us mentioning Matt's research in our previous episode about Jimmy Chilcutt and his work on dermal ridges. This interview runs a little longer than most, so we'll get into it very quickly. But first, a little Monster Talk. Today we're going to talk with uh, Matt Crowley. I, I, I always want to call him Matt the Tube. Uh, he used to work with the Jim Rose Circus, and I guess he could talk to us about that. But he specialized in um, making something really disgusting called bile beer. <laughs> and bile um, beer, yeah, well, I'm sure he'll. T-
4: we should. We should also just sort of uh, think. Uh, we should make sure that w- we mention his uh, work on the uh, dramatic Lithics as well. Don't That's right.
2: We've actually talked about his work before in our episode where we talked about dramatic Lithics. Uh, and specifically where we interviewed uh, Jimmy Chilcutt.
0: And we learned how to pronounce the word.
2: That's right. And we also learned that um, Matt had done a very thorough job of explaining how artifacts of the um, casting process can produce something that looks very much like Dermal Ridges. I think, I think he did a very good job, uh, and that's all on his website, uh, which is called Orgone Research. We'll put the link in the, uh, in the show notes. Scooby-Doo, in their first season, did an episode where the gang tries to investigate a case where um, there's an Iceman. Uh, he's basically a, a caveman in, in a block of ice. And,
4: uh, was this the original series? Yeah, or the original the series, which
2: was uh, really pretty much contemporaneous with the Iceman case. Uh, it would have been just a little bit after. Uh, yeah, so,
0: What did they conclude?
2: Well, it turned out that it was a guy in a costume.
4: What, what, what did those meddling kids <laughs> yeah.
2: It was a good episode. <laughs> uh, at one point, I believe Scooby's wearing the costume of the cape. Oh, yeah. that wacky canine. <laughs> yeah. The original Skeptic cartoon um they always duck in, you know. And what Are there others? Um SpongeBob SquarePants is mm-hmm. really fairly...
0: Maybe some South Park. Yeah.
2: <laughs> I guess South Park is actually pretty skeptical.
0: And Lisa from The Simpsons. Oh, Lisa from The
2: Simpsons, absolutely. But yeah, I was going to see the South Park episode on um cold reading. John, Ed- John Edward right. John Edward uh was very good. So I will uh, until Scrappy Doo showed up, uh, everything was fine. So
4: Did you say Scrappy Douche?
2: I should have.
4: <laughs> I, I believe you did.
2: Yeah, he he yeah, don't get me started. <laughs> Monster dog. So today we're gonna talk to you about the Minnesota Iceman. I can dig it. <laughs> Before we do, do you want to give us? No one else. To, <laughs> do you want to give us a little background on the Minnesota Iceman and how you found out about it and got
3: interested in it? Uh, when I was a kid, uh, my mother was very interested in uh, anomalies and curiosities, uh, fringe science, if you will. Uh, back in the late 60s, um, there were magazines like Fate, of course, and also men's magazines like Saga and Argosy. And she actually had a stack of um, Argosy and Saga magazines that I would look through as a kid. I was too young to sort of go for the cheesecake, but I would see these articles on things like um, you know Bigfoot or um, uh, UFOs or a lot of adventure type stuff. But that's why she had these magazines. And so I, I remembered encountering the Minnesota Iceman story as a child, and I would have been about oh, maybe nine or ten. And um, I also became interested in Bigfoot um, when I was about nine or ten. I saw a movie with my mother and my brother about Bigfoot, um, and then I was given John Green's *On the Track of the Sasquatch* when I was nine. So I was I was very interested in uh, Bigfoot as uh, as a child, and um, watched these TV shows on the subject. In the early '70s, was very interested, and he, there was you couldn't really get any other information on the subject besides the occasional TV show or, or these. I, there, I had all three of John Green's early books, and then by the time I got to high school in '76, uh, I got kind of angry that Bigfoot hadn't been discovered, and I I really put the subject aside until about the year 2000, and I saw a story. On the internet regarding the Skookum cast, I thought, wow, that's pretty interesting. And I, it, it finally dawned on me that um, there was all this information about Bigfoot in general on the internet. And in about 2003, I, I saw a presentation that Lauren Coleman gave uh, here in Seattle, put on by the Seattle Museum of the Mysteries. And. Um, I was listening to his presentation and he started talking about things like, oh, well, the history of the Yeti and the Shipton tracks. i that oh, yeah, that's pretty interesting. I kind of remember that. And then he talked about the, the tracks found in Northern California in 58. And I thought, oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, I kind of remember that. And, you know, of course, he talked about the Patterson film. And then he started talking about the Minnesota Iceman, and I thought, "Oh my God!" <laughs> and my reaction to to that was based on the fact that I'd been a sideshow performer from 1991 until 1994, and so in the meantime, even though I had totally forgotten about the Minnesota Iceman, um, I'd had this sideshow background, and that totally colored. Uh, my perception of what the Minnesota Iceman was all about.
2: Because it seemed more real and authentic now? No,
3: <laughs> Oh, no, oh, no. Be- yes, very, uh, that's right. Well, um, what, uh, what I'm assuming to do, because I'm on the hot seat, is to illustrate why someone with a sideshow background would be so intrinsically skeptical of an exhibit like the Minnesota Ice. Band.
2: Yeah, and, and let me just throw this out there: It's the spoiler alert, because this is right. the same sort of thing that happens with pro wrestling. If you don't want to know the truth, don't listen. That's Go right. ahead, Matt.
4: Plug your ears now.
2: All right, Matt, let us have it.
3: <laughs> well, uh, well, first of all, um, I should explain for those who don't know what I did as a sideshow performer. Um, this the. The history of Sideshow was such that uh, by the time I started in 1991, it was in severe decline. Um, it, uh, it was superseded by television and movies and, um, and as far as traveling carnivals and uh, circuses went, uh, it was had been displaced by things like rides um, quite a bit. So Sideshow... as an uh, an American art form had really declined. I mean, it was basically almost gone by 91. And so I just happened to meet up with a bunch of guys in Seattle who were doing these things on their own. And so by kind of by word of mouth, we learned about each other and we linked up with this gentleman, Jim Rose, who had been busking down in Venice Beach. You know, he'd been doing a lying on a bed of nails and whatnot, As a a busker. And Jim Rose's great talent was promotion. Um, I would really put him up there with a guy like P.T. Barnum, and I say that in all seriousness. As far as promotion goes, I mean, he really had just absolute uh, genius as far as being able to promote these kind of things. So Jim Rose and uh, the four original performers, myself included, uh, started playing locally here in Seattle. And um, then we went. Uh, we got the, the the Perry Farrell of uh, Lollapalooza fame uh, heard about us and invited us to come on Lollapalooza. Uh, we toured Canada right before the summer of '92, and then we went on Lollapalooza in '92, and then we were on uh, the Sally Jesse Raphael show, and uh, we we toured all around the United States, Canada. Uh, and Western Europe and uh, Australia um, during that short period of time. And so I had a very intense exposure to Sideshow during that time. But see, as far as Sideshow went, what our troupe was, we were what was called working acts, which were individual performers performing stunts. We, d- we didn't have any uh, so-called freaks, which would be People that had uh, birth defects, you know, we had for a time we worked with a, a gal who was uh, short. Uh, we went on one Canadian tour with her, Dolly the Doll lady, but uh, we didn't employ anything like uh, gaffs or um, uh, pickled punks or any of that nature. We were we were we were specifically a working act. So it wasn't until after I got off the Sideshow that I began to learn the history of Sideshow. And I began to realize sort of afterwards what place we had in the history of this enterprise.
2: And um, so for our listeners who don't know Pickle Punks and Gaffes, the um, (laughs) Pickle Punks are, and correct me if I'm wrong, those are actual real Things real real babies that are born with birth defects and then preserved, and then
3: some of them are. And it's and it's good that you mentioned the word gaff because gaff is a very important word. Uh, gaff means a fake, and it can be used. I think the proper word is adjective. If something is gaffed, it means it's uh, been tampered with, so it doesn't function as it originally did. Like a pair of handcuffs can be gaffed so that they can be immediately opened, right? Or in terms of a, um, a noun, a gaff is a fake exhibit. And in general, as far as a sideshow term of gaff, it means a solid three-dimensional artifact that's on display that is a fake of some kind. It is a fabricated illusion of some kind. Now, when you mention pickled punks, there was a time in history when people, showmen, were able to obtain um, the recently deceased bodies of um, uh, neonates that didn't survive. And often these were uh, deformed, severely deformed neonates. They were encephalic um, or um, severe bone uh, disorders, and whatnot, and they were, just, were stillborn. And so they were very small and they would be preserved, I presume, in aldehyde. And sometimes they would be they would be purchased by these showmen, and they would be exhibited um, by these showmen. But of course, as time went on, and laws began enacted, and some of these showmen decided that well, it was too legally risky to display genuine human uh, specimens, they resorted to creating Gaffs, uh, which were fabricated illusions, and those have a special name. And those were called pickled punks, or bouncers.
4: Well, Matt, Matt I was just going to throw in there that, that one of the things that makes the the sideshow uh, and the carnival so interesting, and certainly in regard to like things like the Iceman is that um is that there's there's this um this blending of the real and the gaft. Uh, it's it's you know sometimes you'll see something that that you know couldn't couldn't really doesn't seem like it could be real but in fact it is real. It may be you know a, a a a cow with you know an extra leg or something. Uh so and then then you have things that um couldn't be real and in fact they're not real. So I think that that tends to add a an authenticity to it. Yes,
3: you're absolutely right. In fact, um If you look at the history of uh, Sideshow, you'll often see things just like that. For instance, um, even here in Seattle, I saw a small circus a couple of years ago that had a um, a snake exhibit or a reptile exhibit. Those were very common years ago um, because, of course, out in the boonies, you would never be um, an exotic tropical snake. And they, of course, before television became common, you'd never see such a, a thing in your life. And so that was, a, you know, a display of a wild animal from some exotic place was a mainstay of uh, the sideshows uh, for uh, before the oh, I don't know, the 1950s or 40s. And they often, you're absolutely right. They would often mix uh, real specimens with uh, fake specimens. Uh, there is a uh, there's a local tie-in down in the Pacific Northwest which I'm I'm very proud of as a member of the as a as a resident of the Pacific Northwest down in um Long Beach Washington there's a place called Marsh's Free Museum and uh it's absolutely chock full literally to the ceiling with uh, swag mm-hmm. and it has a great deal of artifacts like that uh skulls and uh mummified animals and and indeed, there is a mixture of um, real animals and then gaffes, like say two-headed calves. There's a two-headed calf, and it's kind of sad because they have a two-headed calf that's beginning to split in half. You know, he can see the uh, you can see where it was joined together. Now that's uh, it dried and is falling apart. But the real pièce de résistance of Marsh's Free Museum is a is a gaff called um, the uh, Jake the Alligator Man. And it's they built a special glass case, and it's a uh, it's a half man, half alligator. It's quite uh, it's quite the pride of the Pacific Northwest. <laughs> <laughs> so
0: and so, what's? Oh, I just
3: wanted to know
2: which half was alligator. Sorry, <laughs> the front or back? <laughs> uh,
3: the rear the rear half is
2: alligator. <laughs>
3: <Okay>. <laughs> although although the tail the tail is somewhat uh, disproportionate. Uh, as far as an alligator tail goes, as far as, a, as if you're a connoisseur, I mean, it, you can actually become a connoisseur of these things. There's such a small number of artists making these uh, gaffes today that each of these artists who creates them has a certain sort of a style and you can begin to see patterns in their stylings.
0: Well, Matt, what's the status of sideshows today
3: then? Uh, today, it's almost all working acts. Uh, that is to say that it's just uh, performers doing things like swallowing swords, or eating fire, um, or walking up a ladder of swords, or having concrete blocks uh, uh, smashed on their chest, or the human pin cushion act. Um, those are all s- uh, stunts. And in general, I try to try to follow these people say on uh, Facebook and uh, there's a whole lot of them out there, but I don't get the impression that that many of them are traveling. Uh, some of these older guys, like uh, Ward Hall, uh, I'm not even sure of the of the status of some of these older acts. They're still on the road or they're traveling. Uh, so a lot of it today is younger people, but who don't seem to travel uh, too much. I caught... Um, one of my fellow performers, Tim Cridland, was with a group called the Hells a side Sideshow. They tra- they successfully traveled across the United States. I caught their I caught their act in Seattle here and it was quite good. But it's, mm-hmm. it is it has significantly declined since its heyday of about the or oh, maybe the nineteen thirties.
0: So does this mean that gaffes and uh, sideshow uh, things like that are just not popular today, or people don't believe in them anymore?
3: I I'm not sure. I think that um, th- well, first of all, there's not many there's not many artists out there making the gaffes. And the the weird thing is that since since the explosive growth of the internet, a lot of the artists who are making sideshow gaffes are are doing things like selling them on eBay to private uh, collectors. And so they don't really get exhibited on, on sideshows uh, on the road. They're not taken on the road. Um, mm-hmm. But it should be noted that for many, many years, um, gaffs were a staple of sideshow exhibits. And there's a couple reasons for that. One, um, unlike a human being, you don't have to pay them. Uh, two, Unlike a human being, they won't get drunk and uh, blow up firecrackers in their hotel room or something, uh, or become obnoxious. Um, and um, they, so it, it was a uh, an, a cheap way to flesh out your show if you had a non-living entity.
0: And when this, sorry, one more question, when they sold on eBay, are they sold as gaffes or as
3: real things? Oh, and almost always is gaffes. Almost always is gaffes. Um, and it's uh, there's with all due respect, uh, some of the artists that are out there, you may not even be familiar with. Uh, uh, there's, there's only a few. There's Mark Freerson, or Frierson, um, one of the more respected uh, names in the business. There's Doug Higley. Uh, ben might be familiar with Doug Higley because Doug Higley uh, created the several chupacabra uh, gaffes. Uh, I've got Richard. I've got one
4: in my office right here, in fact. Oh, oh very good. Yeah, well, was it was uh, by Doug Higley. Uh, yeah, it was by Doug. Yeah, ah, uh, yes. And
3: uh, there's a guy out of Portland who who's probably my favorite artist, a guy named William Bivens. Um, he has created some replicas of the Jake the Alligator Man, and a couple of other gaffes. And his his work is really quite spectacular. I think he's an up and coming artist in the world of, um, the the rarefied world of uh, gaff making, um, he produced a lamp created out of a, uh, I believe, a human uh, a vertebral column, um, and he used a lampshade that looked like human skin. It wasn't real human skin. I think it was latex, but it was a superbly produced uh, exhibit that appeared in Bizarre Magazine, and that was sold privately. Uh, but uh, he works mostly in uh, latex. Some of these guys work with um, genuine animal tissues, and some of them work only with synthetics. I think Higley only works with synthetics.
4: Yeah, he's got it, the one that I've got is uh, it's it's fascinating. It's it's created with wire, and then he sort of builds around it, and uh, and he's got resins and stuff, and then he paints it. It's it's pretty pretty cool, but. So I, I I'm seeing how you know, how you know the, the gaffes um, obviously are an integral part of of uh, a lot of the um, a lot of the sideshows because as you said you know you don't have to beat them they don't <laughs> they don't cause trouble they don't demand raises right uh, but uh, but so, so put put uh, if you would put the Minnesota Iceman in context of the sideshow tradition
3: oh that's a wonderful thing because. It's a, it's a, to me, it's one of the the greatest of all time. I mean, in my opinion, it's up there with the Cardiff Giant, if not even superior to the Cardiff Giant, for for a couple of reasons. Okay, and the first thing it should be noted is that um, the Minnesota Iceman actually appeared on the scene before Patterson's film. Uh, as far as I've been able to determine, uh, Frank Hansen, who was the showman exhibiting the Minnesota Iceman, first uh, had it appear on in public in um, May or the spring of 1967. As in, and you re- if you recall, uh, Roger Patterson's film of an alleged Sasquatch wasn't until October of '67. By the late '60s, there was still a great deal of interest in um, the abominable snowman. And Bigfoot. And so, in my opinion, Hansen was capitalizing on the interest of um, the abominable snowman and got extraordinarily lucky because Patterson came along just after his exhibit went on the road. And so there's this natural tie in between the interest in Bigfoot generated by Patterson and the interest in the Minnesota Iceman. And Hansen also got extremely lucky because his exhibit was discovered by a guy named uh, Terry Cullen. And Terry Cullen advised two um, genuine scientists, uh believe they're both zoologists, uh, Ivan Sanderson and Bernard Heuvelmans, who were also considered cryptozoologists. And he advised these guys oh well there's this there's this exhibit and see Cullen took it seriously that well this isn't this isn't a sideshow exhibit; this is a real animal, okay and so the story the plot thickens in nineteen sixty eight because uh Sanderson and heuvelman's travel to frank Hansen's residence, which was a Rolling Stone, Minnesota in December of, uh, I believe, 68, and physically examine the exhibit. Now, Hansen would not let uh, the exhibit be thawed out. The exhibit was of a six-foot-long, approximate, uh, hominoidal, or hairy ape-man-type exhibit in a huge block of ice inside of a specially constructed refrigerator. Um, that was lying flat, and it was covered by uh, a thick pane of glass, so you could look down into it. But not only was it, well, not only was there glass covering it, but the the specimen was covered by several inches of ice. So Sanderson and Hoyleman's spend a whole bunch of time examining this thing, basically looking at it and photographing it and making the making anatomical drawings as best as they could looking through inches of ice and amazingly enough they both come out and say oh this thing is real this is a real animal and furthermore they even both of them sanderson and heuvelmans each published essays in which they declared publicly and with their own scientific um, backing on the line that this is a, these are real animals. In fact, Heuvelmans even uh, gave it a Linnaean nomenclature. He called it uh, Homo Pongoideus.
4: What were they thinking? I mean, surely they must have recognized that. I mean, did did they were they really incapable of recognizing that that, that a gap? <laughs> I mean, I what from from your understanding, what what what, what the hell were they thinking? That's, that's a,
3: that's one of the $64 questions. And if you want a deeper, a slightly deeper answer, in my opinion what you have is sort of a clash of cultures. And in my opinion what's really going on is that by the late 1960s, Sideshow had been in decline so that, uh, it was becoming more and more esoteric um and when you get two individuals like Sanderson and Heuvelmans who are unfamiliar with the history and tradition of sideshow they don't take this exhibit in its context and here's the great tip off for me okay everybody talks about the quote the Minnesota Iceman well the fact is that when Hansen first started exhibiting um this this uh, exhibit he called it the cyberskoi creature. Well, that's your great tip-off right there. There is no place called cyberskoi, right? It's kind of like if I if I had started telling you a joke saying, uh, a man and a horse walk into a bar, right? That's a tip-off, that I'm telling you a joke, right? So when Frank mm-hmm. Hansen dubs this exhibit the cyberskoi creature, and there is no place called cyberskoi,
4: isn't next to um, Narnia and, uh, yeah, I think Narnia and, uh, and, and, uh, where Gulliver traveled. Where was that? He went to a lot of places. Well, he L- went L- to Brobden, There you go. And Lilliput. Yeah. Lilliput. <laughs> Lilliput. It's in between those two.
3: Yeah, yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Well, uh, well, actually, let me just hop in and say you, you've hit on one of my questions, uh, it seems like the, in this I think was a clue to me too, that the origin of the creature seemed to change. It wasn't, not only was he started off in an imaginary place, but uh, the story behind where it came from kept being uh, a different tale, depending on who Hanson was talking to. Can you talk about that?
3: That's correct. That's correct, yeah. Hmm. It originally started out as a, as a block of ice floating off of the uh, coast of Asia. He never was particularly clear about that. And then it changed to coming from the wilds of Minnesota. At one point, Hanson said he shot the creature in the wilds of Minnesota himself. Another time, a story was floated out that, that um, the creature was shot by a woman who was about to be raped by the, this wild ape man. And so this is, this is classic uh, BS by a showman. And this is again this is again something that uh see when I was on the sideshow, I was a uh, a performer, and my whole take on the sideshow was my goal was to try to come up with new stunts right because because when I entered a sideshow, I really did not have an understanding of the history of sideshow, and so I started out from square zero and started coming up with stunts on my own, right, whereas Jim rose was coming from this from a totally different aspect as a promoter. And so even though it was only about three years, um, it was practically like spending 24 hours a day with a guy and, and watching his every move and seeing how a promoter like Jim Rose operates. And you get these guys who generate a steady stream of stories. And they it's like once they get on a roll, they just sort of can't stop. And so, um, when I saw these stories that Frank Hansen was putting out, of course I immediately think of Jim Rose, and it's like, well, of, of course that's that's how that's how sideshow showmen function. They and 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 it's it's almost impossible for a guy like me to do that. I you know I I I'm not a I'm not a natural liar. I'm not a natural bs'er. I'm not a natural storyteller. But there are people who are. And Hansen was clearly one of those. And so Hansen, in my opinion, Hansen is giving out all these these just obvious clues to anybody who's hip to sideshow. You know, he's calling it the cyberscoy creature. He's changing his story. And yet all this time, you've got Sanderson and Heuvelmans are simply uh, ignoring these clues. And as I, as I'm trying to say, it's my belief that Sanderson and Heuvelmans came from this academic background and the culture that they were uh, raised with is totally different from the culture that a Frank Hansen comes from, the sideshow culture. There is a meeting of different worlds there and I'm sorry to be blunt, but in my opinion, um, Sanderson and Hoebelmanns were just clueless as to what was really going on.
0: And were all of the stories coming from Hansen or were they originating elsewhere, or from other people? No, it was
3: all from Hanson. I mean, and that's and that's the problem, it, it, it's because because soon enough, um, after the late sixties, some of the uh, Bigfoot proponents were begin were beginning to say, suggest, well, this is Bigfoot, right? Even though. Heuvelman said it was Homo pongois. Some of these Bigfoot proponents said, well, it's probably a, a subspecies of Bigfoot. And um, for many years, Lauren Coleman was the most widely known advocate that this was some kind of uh, genuine hominoid or Bigfoot-type creature. For years, uh, promoted that.
4: Does he still believe that? Do you know what the latest is on that?
3: no. And there's a story that goes with that, and it's, uh, this is the story with that. Uh, in 2008, we had, uh, two guys, uh, Dyer and Whitten, uh, from Georgia, who started saying, well, I've got a Bigfoot in a freezer, right? And they were putting out these YouTube videos, and, uh, one of these guys, I think it was, uh, uh, one of the guys actually was a police officer, right? But he was saying, "Oh yeah, I've got Bigfoot. I've got Bigfoot." And this went on for several weeks and several weeks. And even when they were releasing these videos, their story was becoming the his the story was beginning to fall apart because in one of these videos, um, he introduces a fellow and said, "Well, here's this Ph.D. scientist," and the Ph.D. scientist says, "Well, yeah, we're going to take a look and see if this is the missing link." Well, no Ph.D. scientist says a ridiculous term like the missing link. That's I mean, it's your Clear tip off that it's a fake. So everybody following the story, even from the beginning, knew that this guy's a fake. And then another gentleman on the internet uh, did some background checking and realized that this Ph.D. was actually a relative of, uh, of uh, Witten and Dwyers. And um, and of course, eventually Tom Biscardi becomes involved, and it leads to a gigantic, nationally broadcast press conference. Well, guess who was watching this press conference, but none other than Vern Langdon. And Vern Langdon was a man who had worked at Dawn Post Studios for a number of years. In fact, he had worked with um, the production of the um, uh, Planet of the Apes films and a very well-respected creature uh, costume designer. Vern Langdon started posting on Bigfoot forums and saying this is hilarious because this is a this is a redo of the Minnesota Iceman and people started realizing that well this is the real deal this is the real uh, Vern Langdon and they started realizing wow this is pretty amazing and so to their credit the two guys running Bigfoot forums invited Vern Langdon onto their uh internet podcast and um so by August of 2008, Vern Langdon did an hour and a half interview uh, with um, uh, Brown and uh, Vella regarding the backstory of the Minnesota Iceman. And at that point, it's it was just, in my opinion, Langdon just killed the legend dead because what he did is he explained the timeline that Frank Hansen had approached. Of uh, Don Post Studios, as early as I think 1966, and said, "Well, I want this. I want this gaff, right? I'm, I'm going to start exhibiting a, um, a gaff for my um, for my touring exhibit, and I want you guys to build it." And according to Langdon, Langdon really didn't want to have anything to do with Hanson because. Langdon was on a professional level that was far above the kind of sleazy level that Hansen was on, and they said, "Well, we're not going to do it. We're going to refer you to another man named Howard Ball." And um, that appears to be the solution to the mystery of the iceman, that it was a uh, it was fabricated by a gentleman named Howard Ball. There appears to be a little bit of a discrepancy in the accounts that I've got. One, Langdon says it was created out of, quote, hot melt, which is a vinyl. And others, uh, relatives of Balls, said, well, it was created out of uh, rubber. According to Langdon, uh, latex rubber is is unstable in water. And I don't know enough about the polymers and whatnot to give you an answer what it ultimately was, but it was a a um, rubbery polymer um, that was fabricated by Howard Ball and then, quote, ventilated, which the hairs were added by a different artist. And so it be, it, the story becomes essentially untenable as a real animal because it, it pushes the timeline back so far before 67. Um, and, and then there was a blog entry on Cryptomundo um, in September by Lauren Coleman, in which he saw the light and said, well, I can no longer support the Minnesota Iceman. Coleman gives no mention to Vern Langdon's interview, but uh, skeptics for many years were poking holes at the notion that the Minnesota Iceman was a, a real deal. And uh, I'd like to draw your attention to a... Um, an essay that was written there was before the internet of course there were fanzines and there was a fanzine written by a gentleman named Chris Fellner uh his fanzine was called Freaks it ran from 1996 to 1998 and in uh, February of 97 Fellner wrote a long article entitled The Mysterious Creature in Ice which I have uh, taken the liberty of uploading to my own website um, in which he just really takes uh, Sanderson and Heuvelmans to task for buying into this gaff as a real animal. I'll just read directly from what uh, Fellner is saying. I mean, and Fellner's tone is a little bit uh, uh, vicious, but it's it's it really in- does encapsulate the tone of a from a, from a sideshow perspective. And Fellner writes. It doesn't take a genius to poke holes in Sanderson's argument for Bozo's authenticity. They called him Bozo. First, he says, you cannot just make a corpse like this, either out of bits and pieces of the bodies of other animals or of wax with some half a million hairs inserted into it, unquote. Why not? Didn't he ever hear of the Fiji mermaid, half fish and half monkey? As for inserting hairs into wax, maybe Sanderson should have visited the Ripley's Believe It or Not Museums, where he would have found two life-size wooden statues of the Japanese artist Hanu Numa Masaka Kichi.
4: Some people enjoy the waves or whatever uh, crashing, and I enjoy listening to a quantum
1: physics audiobook. I do think there are many things in the world that we just don't understand yeah. and probably won't understand. That's our yeah. whole show.
2: <laughs> so join us every Wednesday on all major podcast platforms and find us on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at Chinwagpod and Wagon.
3: when he thought he was going to die from tuberculosis, he plucked every hair out of his body, including pubic hair, and painstakingly inserted them into tiny holes drilled into the statue's solid wood. Compared with that feat, putting hairs into wax would be a piece of cake. Wow. We'll
2: put a link to that article in the show notes on your website.
3: All right. Now it's an excellent it's an excellent article from a from a sideshow perspective. So Frank Hansen he
2: he had some history of working with hoaxes, carnival sideshows that sort of thing.
3: Uh, yes, in fact, uh, prior to um, the Cyber creature, his primary exhibit was a John Deere tractor. <laughs>
2: Real or a gaff <laughs> no, it was That's real awesome.
3: it was real, and uh, there's where did you the- even find the- one of those <laughs> um, It was indeed a rare tractor um, and there's the, the the premier historian of sideshow is a guy named a w stencil, and he 's got two books out uh, excellent books on sideshow history. one is entitled Seeing is Believing, and the other is a recent one in- entitled Circus and Carnival Ballyhoo. And he actually, Stencil found a photograph of Hansen's um, tractor. And so um, so the answer is yes. Uh, <laughs> but uh, obviously a tractor is a markedly different exhibit than an uh, ape man.
0: And uh, the Iceman is the true missing link,
3: isn't he? Well, there was they were bantering that term around. Um, yeah. There, there were both Sanderson and Hoylemans did indeed write these long, uh, technical write-ups, uh, throwing in as much uh, polysyllabic anatomical terminology as they could to clearly demonstrate to their scientific acumen. And this has been the the fundamental cornerstone of all of the advocates over the years. Because there were no somatic samples ever taken of this exhibit, not a one, Hansen never allowed it to be thought out and physically examined or tissue samples taken. Okay. So the Bigfoot advocates who say that this was a real creature, they all fall back on the argument from authority by saying that, well, Hansen and Heuvelmans were zoological experts and they knew what they were talking about. They could tell the difference between a, a fabricated elu- illusion and the real thing, and um, you may or may not. And that's that's of course a you know that's on the surface that sounds like a great argument, but um, you may or may not know that um, Ivan Sanderson, as as time went on, um, began to advocate more and more uh, outrageous and untenable things. Uh, speaking of things, he wrote two books. One was called Things, and another was called More Things. And the book More Things, published in 1969, he gives a long account of an event that occurred in 1948, in which a series of very large three-toed tracks were found in Clearwater, Florida, and Sanderson investigated these to great extent and um, this sounds like I'm making this up, this sounds like I'm kidding, but I'm not, that Sanderson eventually concluded that uh, these were made by a 15-foot penguin, and on page 55 of the book More Things, he writes, a thick-billed penguin 15 feet long on the coast of Florida is admittedly pretty horrid, but I don't think we can legitimately any longer laugh it out of court. And years later, they, they found the man who actually engaged in the hoax, a guy named Tony Signorini. And Signorini had fabricated a set of large three-toed uh, prosthetics out of cast iron. And, um, there's also a link on my website to that, um, the, the 15-foot penguin episode. So, For a long time, Sanderson was a somewhat credulous individual, and I think the most stunning example of the credulity of uh, Ivan Sanderson uh, is found on uh, pages 74 and 75 of his book, More Things, because he's commenting on the nature of illusion with regards to the Patterson film, and he alludes to the movie uh, The Lost World. Well, the, this guy who did the special effects for The Lost World was a guy named Willis O'Brien, who later on did the special effects for King Kong. And if you remember the movie, the original King Kong, um, King Kong is made to move in a kind of a herky-jerky way, and that's called stop motion. And that's how they did the special, thats how he did the special effects on The Lost World as well. They would take a model they would move it a little bit take a photograph or two move the model a little bit take a photograph or two on and on and on very painstaking tedious work and that's why you get that kind of herky-jerky effect but uh, to uh, Ivan Sanderson uh, Ivan Sanderson had a different take on how those special effects were accomplished and I quote from you from uh, More Things pages 74 and 75 Sanderson writes even in the late 1920s the dinosaurs in the film of Conan Doyle's The Lost World were utterly realistic close-ups of their heads showing drooling saliva, nictitating membranes, and flashing eyes. Incidentally, these dinosaurs were wearing skillfully constructed suits by a man who had a degree in paleoontology and were fitted over live chickens." So Sanderson believed that live chickens with, with little dinosaur suits were what the special effects were made of from the Lost World. So Sanderson I was Sanderson was uh Sanderson was, shall we say, a credulous individual.
0: Was he known so it, to be a cryptozoologist before the Iceman appeared?
3: Oh yes. Oh yes. Yeah, he was um had he had I think appeared on the Tonight Show um, in in a very sort of traditional role. But as time went on, he gravitated to the more and more unusual. But even today, Ivan Sanderson is held up to be this uh, founding cryptozoologist and, and his advocacy of 15-foot penguins and uh, chickens and dinosaur suits is conveniently written out of the history of this eminent cryptozoologist.
4: Well, let me ask you that now... Presumably the Minnesota Iceman was not the first alleged, you know, either Bigfoot-like creature or humanoid creature uh encased in ice, right? Or, or was it the first that you know? Of?
3: Uh yes it was. There was a there was a um a frozen uh exhibit and Vern Langdon went into this extensively in his um uh podcast interview. There was a whale called Little Irvy which was a real whale. Uh, and it really was encased in a block of ice, and it had been uh, exhibited prior to hansen and so there are some who speculate that Hansen saw the success of little Irvy and decided to uh, to emulate it and i will say I will say this there there's an important follow up that should be noted um, there are a lot of people, a lot of these advocates who still believe in the reality of the Minnesota Iceman, who say, well, I saw this thing, and it's real. And then they'll give various descriptions of it. And I have suspected this for a long time, and I finally got proof in Stencil's books that, as as of course, um, you often see in the entertainment business, as soon as something is successful, imitators come along. And that's what happened with the Minnesota Iceman. As soon as Hanson... came out with the Cyberskoy creature, the Minnesota Iceman, other uh, showmen began to copy his exhibit. And so I believe that Hanson's Iceman was the first of its kind, Uh, but there were certainly imitators that came after it. And so you have to take anybody who says, oh, I saw the Minnesota Iceman, yada, yada, yada. Well, did you see Frank Hanson's or did you see one of the imitators? Which one did you see?
4: Right. Right. In, in fact, uh, just a quick follow-up. Well, I, I actually saw a uh, in, an updated version of the Minnesota Iceman uh, two or three years ago at a state fair, uh, and it was um, it was you know it was very similar to you know the descriptions and, and the drawings that you see. And it was presumably this sort of humanoid form, and uh, the, the the banners outside of the exhibit had this you know told this story of this. Arctic Explorer, who, who had brought back this this mysterious being encased in ice, and for mere buck fifty or whatever it was, you could go in and see it. So it's right, uh, right. They're, they're still touring mm-hmm. in some versions.
3: Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, um, to get to get into a uh, a, a deeper philosophical or artistic uh, level about the Minnesota Iceman. It's been my experience, if you look at gaffes as art, right? If you look at them as sculpture, as fantasy, sculpture, a lot of these artists have an almost irresistible impulse to incorporate some sort of uh, grotesque or exaggerated or augmented feature, right? There's a fascinating book by, it's a very unusual book, by a guy named Peter Dance entitled Animal Fakes and Frauds, and it details how far back in history gaffes go. And one of the earliest were mermaids, and in uh, Dance's book, he alludes to mermaid exhibits that go back to like 1775, and um, reading here from dance, uh, it says the reality is concocted by the mermaid manufacturer. Fell far short of the ideal of beauty because uh, people would see mermaid uh, claim to see mermaids, and they were beautiful. And uh, the ideal of beauty he's referring to, it is as if they knew that they could not produce anything even remotely as satisfying as the legendary mermaid and abandoned the attempt in favor of a grotesque parody of it to achieve the parody. They had to resort to pastiche as we shall now see. And so you see that even from the very earliest days, the gaps produced by these artists often ran to the grotesque or at least they would incorporate a grotesque element, um, For instance, uh, this gentleman that I'm quite, uh, the artist that I'm quite fond of, William Bivens, you know, often will have these mouths open to reveal a a mouth full of uh, frightening teeth, right? Um, Or in Higley's case, uh, the shocking color of the skin. Uh, Higley's gaffs often run to the yellow and orange as far as skin color. I mean, so these artists often incorporate these particular augmentations, and in the Minnesota Iceman, um, you you see this in the feet and the hands. And the British primatologist, John Napier, wrote a book entitled Bigfoot, The Yeti and Sasquatch in Myth and Reality. And he has an excellent account of the whole Minnesota Iceman. If you want an impartial account, that's an excellent uh, version. And he alludes to this. And I love this word he uses. He uses the word spatulate, right? The hands were spatulate. And if you look at the photographs and the, the anatomical drawings. <laughs> uh, Ball obviously um, that was his signature. He he made the hands and the feet almost cartoonishly big. It's like it's like beavis and butthead, you know they have cartoonishly big heads. And um, according to um, uh, Vern Langdon, when Hansen approached Langdon uh, Langdon excuse me, Hansen had a drawing with him. He says, Well, I want you to produce this. So the idea probably originated with Hansen. And so it's it's an I, I would say that in from an artistic perspective, it's almost an irresistible urge on the part of these uh, artists to to augment something, to make it cartoonishly uh ridiculous, if you will. And uh, you know, so if you look at the the hands alone should tell you that this is a you know it's a ridiculous non-human non-biological entity. Okay,
2: so so there's a really str- I mean okay, it's strange enough that there's supposedly a frozen prehistoric man, but there's an uh, there's another aspect to this case that's always puzzled me. And that's at some point Hansen for some reason whether he was feeling too much pressure or heat because of the publicity or what, I don't know. He kind of disappears for a while and then comes back with what he calls a new Iceman. Right. And, and, and this new Iceman, uh, according to, or if I'm reading it right, Sanderson uh, you know, dismisses as an obvious hoax. But John Napier, who's another anthropologist who looked at both of them, says it's the same creature, just repositioned and refrozen. Uh, did, did you get... To see any photos of both to compare, or, or what was your take on that? Is, is it the same critter?
3: That's an excellent question. Yes. Um, well, the fact is that uh, years ago um, I was uh, debating online on Bigfoot Forums uh, this very issue. There was another gentleman who. Uh, didn't have the sideshow background that I did, but still had, a, had enough of a knowledge of the anatomy, of anatomy and primatology, and uh, you know, history of evolution. The guy who post on Bigfoot forums uh, under the handle of Wolf Tracks is a Bigfoot associate of mine. Very intelligent guy, and he he dug around to try to find these photographs because uh, Lauren Coleman and, a, and an associate of Coleman's named Hall had uh, taken some photographs, but um, none of them really had surfaced on the internet or whatnot. So uh, this gentleman, Wolf Trax, um had done some comparisons, uh, at least of the head, of the, uh, quote, uh, original and the, quote, uh, fake. I mean, in my belief, there was, of course, only one artifact, and that was this fabricated delusion. Um, and I do believe that uh, Napier's take is correct. It's my belief that There's no way that you could have kept this thing refrigerated constantly. Um, The energy requirements, the fuel required for a generator to keep this thing refrigerated constantly, literally for years, would have been impossible. And in fact, um, uh, Joe Nickel wrote a book entitled Secrets of the Sideshows. And Nickel saw this exhibit, I believe in Canada, and uh, it had melted out somewhat. And uh, Nickel uh, uh, provides a first person account of um, touching it. Uh, it says, um, it was lying in a freezer like tank, but some of the ice had melted away, exposing part of the body. I reached in and felt it. Not surprisingly, it was rubbery. Right? And um, so, yes, uh, I believe that it, it definitely had melted out at some point. It got moved. And as far as the photographs, um, the only photographs that I've ever seen are of the head, and in my opinion, there are no differences between the head of the supposed original and the head of the supposed duplicate. And the real um, the real concession I found online when Lauren Coleman wrote his blog entry on CryptoMundo on um, September ten two thousand eight 2008, where he says, Oh, I give up. It's, I don't believe in it anymore. He was asked specifically by a, um, a Bigfoot uh, advocate, Lauren, could you please tell us the list of the 15 differences, which were the, the a list that um, Sanderson and Heuvelmans created, a list of the alleged differences between the alleged original and alleged fake. I have read there were differences, but not what they were. Lauren Coleman responds, The list of 15 differences was formulated by Sanderson and Heuvelmans and never shared publicly or with Mark Hall and me. This was done so Sanderson and Heuvelmans could privately tell if the real body was ever shown again by Hansen, without Hansen or the secret owner knowing what these discovered differences were. The list may be hidden in the archive of Heuvelmans' files held in the Zoology Museum in Switzerland. Wow, which is of course, which is of course, you know, ridiculous. But becoming dead serious here for a minute, it, it's kind of like you publish a, it's kind of like you submitted a paper to Nature and you said, well, I've I've made measurements of fifteen parameters uh, to a, st- a statistically significant um, difference of p less than point oh five percent. And then you, the editor of Nature says, well, what are these parameters you've measured? And you say, well, they're secret. They're secret. Well, <laughs> you know, you'd, you would be treated like one of the angle trisectors submitting a proof of angle trisection to a mathematics journal. You know, it's it, the, the level of pseudoscience with keeping your secret criteria is, is absurd. I mean, that's pure, unadulterated pseudoscience.
2: Or the second Iceman was on double secret probation.
3: <laughs> I will the probation. Yeah. Well, I will tell. I will. I will straight up tell you this. I mean, I don't know exactly how it works, or or you know, but I will tell you that it works. In that, to promote stuff, uh, like like sideshow stuff, you kind of need to keep up a continuous stream of BS to keep the customer interested, or else the story just. Loses, it it peters out and loses interest. You know, I saw Jim Rose do this. I mean, Jim Rose was on a roll, you know, 24 hours a day hyping the show and telling different stories with little twists here, there, and everywhere. And in my opinion, it was a perfect story for Frank Hansen to tell uh, just to simply keep the publicity machine alive and deepen the mystery and keep people curious you know it's just pure hype and 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 sanderson hoidman's and for a while lauren coleman believed this hype
4: so let me ask i mean is that why the ice man uh, became so famous and why it's still talked about today is because of of uh, sanderson and others or was it just great showmanship by hansen or a combination or what what to what do you attribute the fact that we're still talking about this
3: um, well, I think we're seeing a twilight. I think that I think that 2008 was the real watershed because because Lauren Coleman really was the last of the major advocates as far as within the uh, the Bigfoot world. Um, I know that um, outside of the the Bigfoot world, there's this other gentleman named Lloyd Pye, and if you go to Lloyd Pye's website, Lloyd Pye is more known for a an anomalous skull that he possesses, called a Star Child skull, in which he claims it was a product of human alien hybridization. But Pi also claims to be a hominoid or hominid researcher, and this is very interesting because um, I've looked on his website and he produces a an illustration of the Minnesota Iceman, and he it reads the um, caption reads the second best proof of hominoid reality is this creature shot through the mid-back note exit hole in the chest and finished off through the left eye socket rear of the head is blown away its corpse was frozen in a block of ice and displayed from 1968 to 1980 at fairs and malls in the united states and canada it made its owner rich at the expense of what could have been learned from careful scientific analysis of it I saw it as a young man and have no doubt on a personal level that it was absolutely real and not faked in any way. And this is a very interesting claim by Lloyd Pye because uh, no one besides Lloyd Pye has ever noted the presence of a quote gunshot wound, especially an exit gunshot wound in the chest of this creature. And there's only a couple of possibilities, either, um, Either Pie saw a different exhibit than Hanson uh, than Hansen exhibited, or um, uh, Lloyd Pie is grossly mistaken, or Lloyd Pie was able to, with uh, Superman vision, see something that everybody that nobody else saw. So I'm going to go with Occam's Razor here and say that Lloyd Pie is simply mistaken that there was never any. Gaping exit wound hole in Frank Hansen's exhibit, um, but I will say that um, Lloyd Pye is in the minority. You know, he's, he's he was never really incorporated in the, in the subculture of bigfootery. Mm-hmm. If you look at Jeff Meldrum's book, or um, Chris Murphy has got a new book out on uh, Bigfoot, um, you will not see the Minnesota Iceman listed in the index. And it's my belief that, um, believe it or not, this is one of those subjects that's kind of gone by the wayside as far as Bigfooters claiming, well, this is the Bigfoot that got away.
2: You've actually uh, raised an issue I had, which was maybe he's doing the same thing with this creature in a block of ice, which is hard to see, it becomes kind of like a Rorschach test in the same way Patty uh, is, that you can kind of see the details you want to see if you try to squeeze him out of there
3: yeah i I think that's a very good point. I think that's a very good point and um in fact, I think that that's part of the genius of Frank Hansen in that he it was up to him to determine how much ice and of what uh lucidity to place over the exhibit, how much do you want to expose of it? you know how dirty do you want to make the window that you have to look through to see this exhibit. Um that was some real genius on Hansen's part. Yeah, uh, you know, you, you just it's a tease. You know, you 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 show just enough.
0: I've read that Hansen was making thirty five cents or twenty five cents per view of the Iceman. Do you have any idea of how much he made on this exhibit?
3: I think he made thousands and thousands of dollars. Um according to Vern Langdon uh He estimated that um the fabrication by ball of the of the um exhibit would have cost about five thousand dollars and then he had to go to uh i believe it was union ice to get the refrigerator custom made right so that would have been thousands of dollars as well but he probably did make his uh, profits back uh over time. Uh, i don't have any idea what the numbers were but uh just by the sheer number of people going through on a you know on a daily basis uh it was quite a successful uh, exhibit
2: mm-hmm. ironically uh, you know is this this uh iceman you know is closely tied at least from a timeline to to bigfoot and the Patterson-Gimlin film and um i noticed when i was doing some research for the show that um at least um Peterson's brother-in-law Al Diatley uh, blames the uh, the Iceman for their loss of about a hundred thousand dollars in investment. <laughs> so,
3: <laughs> a competition, yes. yeah, yeah,
2: the, uh, yeah. I guess the, the, something happened, like in the the Rochester Post Bulletin. Uh, Hansen somewhat, I guess, kind of sideways, admitted to a hoax, and it, according to uh, Diatley, that that really killed the market for Bigfoot after they had already prepaid for. You know thousands and thousands of dollars for uh you know uh theater rental and advertising and other things, but there's so many weird stories of, uh, involved with the patterson gimlin uh, Patterson-Gimlin, uh and, and you know when you have uh uh people hawking a uh, possibly hoaxed uh, bigfoot film competing with uh possibly hoaxed uh iceman it is uh uh the truth is the last thing you'll see i imagine so
3: yeah that's a very good point that's a very good point uh one thing that um Uh, My former Sideshow associate, Tim Cridland, who goes by the stage name Zamora, who's uh, probably the world's greatest human pincushion act today, um, and an excellent historian on Sideshow, Um, one thing that he suggested to me, and this is an excellent point, is that you've got to realize that, um, and, and indeed you are correct, that Hansen at one point said, well, what this is, this is a fabricated illusion. This is a fabricated illusion, right? And uh, Tim Cridland has suggested to me that, well, you've got a problem, especially when you cross a border. And there was, there was uh, an incident where Hansen is trying to transport his exhibit across uh, uh, national boundaries into Canada. Well, what if you are traveling with an exhibit and a genuine scientist like Heuvelmans uh, calls it HOMO, the same genus as man? Well, suppose you have some overzealous customs official or a local sheriff or a police officer or something, uh that um, decides that well, maybe we've got a just a, a hippie on our hands, you know? Some well, this is a this is a human. This is a just a hairy human because there are hairy humans. There are people who suffer from hypertrichosis and whatnot. So what if um for whatever reason someone at Customs decides to seize the exhibit? Well Hansen therefore creates for himself an out if he publicly says, well, this is a fabricated el- illusion, then he can he can use that argument at a border or with um, some sort of official who would might want to confiscate um, the thing.
4: I think the thing that I I find most interesting about the Minnesota Iceman story is just that it's... It is, at least for a while, it was taken very, very seriously among Absolutely. cryptozoologists. And, and here it is, you know, it, you know, it, to our modern, you know, admittedly skeptical eye, it's, it's a fairly self-evident hoax, especially if you know anything about the, the carnival and sideshows and everything else. Um, but, you know, as with the 15 foot tall penguins, uh, it's, I think it's a very instructive case in the, in cryptozoology, in fact, in the paranormal in general of where, you know, an, a, Actual legitimate hoax fooled the experts, um, and and there you go. Yes, yes, it is. It's uh, it's it's taken it's taken a long, long time.
3: Uh, it's it's something that Michael Dennett told me, which I didn't believe at first, but um, I've come to see what he told me is the truth. And I don't think this idea was um, unique to Dennett. I think it was been known long before Dennett came around. But you know, Mike Dennett said that. Um, uh evidence never goes away, but there's always somebody out there. No matter how well something is debunked, uh it's always going to stick around. I and mean, if you look over at the UFO field, you still have guys promoting uh, the well a UFO craft in Waswell, or you still have guys promoting the MJ twelve documents. I and mean, you know, you can find examples of this everywhere. Um I mean, the whole notion of creationism. There's, there are creationists out there who will not, to not will, well, this Earth is 6,000 years old. I mean, these are just ridiculous concepts, and yet there are people who ardently believe them. So I think guys like Lloyd Pye will forever hang on to this notion, uh, even though it's ridiculous.
0: And, uh, Matt, we always ask our guests to name their favorite monster. So what's your favorite monster?
3: Oh, Sasquatch, of course. <laughs> that one. Which one is that? <laughs> uh, it he, goes always many talk names. he goes by many yeah. names. Uh Northern California is known as Bigfoot. To the Hoopa Indians he's known as Oma or Wild, you know, Boss of the Woods or Um But in terms of fiction, of course, um in terms of known fiction, uh it would of course be uh Gorn the Gorn from the uh, episode Arena from Oh the- yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. That's a classic. Yeah. Yeah. Did, did you see the Mythbusters where they tried to reproduce the cannon?
3: I did. I did. <laughs> I had mixed feelings about it, like I have mixed feelings about Mythbusters, right. but uh, <laughs> they didn't add, you know, and that I, I confess that I indeed made gunpowder myself when I was 10 years old. Uh, back in the day, in the early 70s, you could actually buy potassium nitrate from pharmacies. <sighs> you could actually buy sulfur from pharmacies, and, of course, you'd get your... Uh, charcoal briquettes and um, uh, so yeah, well, yeah. I made uh, I made uh, gunpowder like Captain Kirk did back when I was ten years old. We'll edit this out. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. But I never, but I never contained it. Unlike Captain Kirk, I never contained it. I just let it. And I think you know, I got two eyes and ten uh, fingers and ten toes. And <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, you and
2: I have that in common. We've messed with things that probably should never have done.
3: <laughs> <Bryce>.
2: <laughs> I'm still surprised that I'm not a big piece of scar tissue.
3: Uh, yeah. Bryce. Well, oh, I will I will publicly confess that I made my last um, IED when I was 18.
2: There you go. Right. <laughs> yeah,
4: And that is the truth. Good of you to clarify, Matt.
2: Yeah. Okay. <laughs> thank you so much for spending some time with us talking about the Minnesota Iceman, Matt.
0: Mm, thank you, Matt.
2: We'll put a link to your website in our show notes.
0: Monster
2: dog. You just listened to an interview with Matt Crowley about the strange story of the Minnesota Iceman. One correction, the Scooby-Doo episode featuring the Ice Man is in season 2, titled Scooby's Night with a Frozen Fright. Monster Talk is hosted by myself, Blake Smith, Dr. Karen Stolzno, and Benjamin Radford. Monster Talk is produced with the help of Skeptic Magazine. If you like skepticism and investigating mysteries, you should be reading Skeptic Magazine and Skeptical Inquirer. Seriously. Monster Talk theme songs by Peach Stealing Monkeys. Intro music was by Robin, both used by permission. The opinions expressed on Monster Talk are not necessarily those of Skeptic Magazine or the Skeptic Society, but we're glad they help us put on the show.
1: Stay abreast of the latest from Skeptic Magazine and the Skeptic Society? Want cutting edge skeptical articles delivered straight to your inbox every week? Then subscribe to eSkeptic, the free electronic newsletter of the Skeptic Society. Visit skeptic.com to sign up.